You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. I want to talk about the name of Jesus. Jesus, the name above all names, the beautiful name. There is no other name like the name of Jesus. He's praiseworthy, and billions of prayers have been prayed in his name. Countless songs have been sung to his name. Lives have been rescued, redeemed, and restored in his name. Eternities have been secured in his name. Demons tremble, rulers shudder, sickness bows, death dies, oceans roar, waves become still, rocks cry out, angels marvel, multitudes praise, and nations worship the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Over the past 2,000 years, more people on planet Earth have known the name of Jesus than any other name. Billions have heard his name. Today, the name of Jesus can be found in more than 6,000 languages and more added each day. But the reason there is no other name like Jesus is because the person who bears that name is the Christ, the Son of God, who has been the only comfort in life and death and is our only hope when there is hopelessness in the world. And by his name, Acts 4, 12 says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In his name we have life, John 20, 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. By his name many have been healed, Matthew eleven five. the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. All creation shouts his name, and one day everybody will confess his name, Philippians. 2 9 says therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name so at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father therefore I believe in God the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ his only son Son, our Lord. We're in week three of our series on the Apostles' Creed, where we're looking at this historic creed and the emphasis that it places on the core doctrinal beliefs as it summarizes for us as Christians what we believe. And this is important because the Apostles' Creed contains essential Christian doctrines and beliefs that summarize the gospel and make up the foundation of our faith. It's important to know what you believe. It's important to know why you believe 
what you believe. And the Apostles' Creed helps us to do that. It does not replace Scripture. It points us to the Scripture so that it equips believers, which Ephesians 4 says we are to be equipped. It equips believers to be able to summarize our faith, what we believe. And so today we're going to look at the statement in the Apostles' Creed, as we've already looked at, I believe in the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Today we're going to look at, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Really, the New Testament was written to make and justify this claim that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord. Christians are defined by this primary mark as well, that we believe in and are disciples of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Consequently, the Apostles' Creed is really a confession of Christ Jesus from his conception by the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about next week, all the way to his ascension and exaltation and his imminent return. This really is a Christological creed, a creed of Christology, if you will, and we want to better identify who he is so that we can know what we believe and stand firm on it. Who is this Lord that we worship? Who is this Savior that we're praising and that we're singing about just now who has rescued and redeemed us from our sin? First, let's look at the meaning of his name, the meaning of the name that we confess. And we'll basically do this throughout this whole service and this sermon. Today, I, I want to tell you ahead of time, my desire for this is there's not so many points and there's not so, we'll do this and do this. I really am exalting the name of Jesus and who he is and who he's supposed to be in our life so that when we worship him at the end of the service, maybe it's a little bit different than it was that we just worship right now. Not to say there's anything wrong with that, but when Jesus is exalted, our worship goes to another level when we see him as he truly is and praise him for what he has done. So maybe this will affect us in our hearts today. I've been praying and believing that it would. Let's look at the meaning of the name that we confess. We actually make some very profound theological statements by just naming the name of Jesus Christ or saying that we believe in Jesus Christ. When you say that, you're making some profound theological statements because Jesus is Greek for Joshua, which means God is Savior. The Lord saves. Christ literally means the anointed one. So Christ identifies Jesus as God's anointed Savior King. It's not just some surname like Gerard for me. No, it identifies him as who he is. So when we say we believe in Jesus Christ, we are declaring Jesus to be the anointed one of God, the Messiah who has come to save because Jesus is the Lord who saves. Also, the title Christ conveys the claim that Jesus fulfilled all three ministries for which men were anointed in the Old Testament in order for God's people to have a relationship with him. So they were anointed as prophet. They were anointed as priests. They were anointed as kings to fulfill earthly roles in protecting and speaking and having a relationship between God and man. And so as the anointed one, Jesus now comes and is fulfilling every role as prophet, priest, and king. And we need to see this as it relates to us as sinners, that how God uses those relationships, who Jesus is as the Christ, for our benefit. What do sinners need to be in right relationship with God? We need Jesus Christ, the anointed one, to be all of these things for us. First of all, we need him to be the prophet Prophets spoke God's word to people. That's what they were to do in the Old Testament. They were anointed to speak God's word to people. 
So why? So they could have a relationship with God, so they could hear God, so they could follow God. And as sinners, we are ignorant of God without him speaking to us first, without him initiating a relationship with us and speaking to us. Without him doing so, we'll never hear him. Jesus is the word of God, John 1, 1 says. He is the living word. He does not merely speak the word of God as an ordinary human prophet did, but he is the word made flesh. He is the final word, the ultimate revelation of God. The living word is who he is. Hebrews 1 says it this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets because that's how he spoke. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is our prophet. He's also a priest. He's our priest. In the Old Testament, people needed the priest to mediate between them and God, to to bridge that gap between a holy God and a sinful people so the priest would bring in the sacrifices of of the blood of the animals, of of rams and goats and, and lambs and all of those things so that that blood sacrifice could make a way for there just to be a little bit of connection between God and his people, to make things right between sinful man and a holy God. Well, that's what Jesus came to do, the word says, once and for all. As sinners, we need reconciliation to God the Father. So Jesus Christ became our once and for all sacrifice so that he could be our mediator between us and God. Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our help in our time of need. When is your time of need? If you're like me, and I know that you are, all the time. We need God's help. We need his grace. We need his mercy. And what we could do on a Sunday like today corporately or any time as we go through our life is to come boldly before him, boldly before him because of his grace. And it's because he is our priest, our mediator, once and for all. And he is also king. As a matter of fact, we call him the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that is who he is. In the Old Testament, people needed a human king. They clamored and asked, we need a human king to protect us. We need a human king to to guide us and and tell us what to do and to strengthen us so that we can have might and power and be seen as strong like everybody else. We need a human king. But here's the truth and what Jesus came to do for us so that we could understand we don't need that kind of human power. We don't put our hope in earthly rulers. We don't put our hope in earthly governments. We don't put our hope in anything other than Jesus, our king. The Jews of Jesus' time expected a political king. That's why they missed him. They're expecting a political king to come and conquer and give strength to them and let them be what everybody looked at as the most powerful nation. And instead, Jesus came as a conquering king, but not to conquer those people, but to conquer sin and death and hell and the grave. He came as a conquering king who died and rose again so that he could be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, one day, he's coming back to rule as king again, but today, right now, he is supposed to be the king of our hearts, the king of our lives. We believe in Jesus the Christ, 
the anointed one, the Messiah, our prophet, priest, and king, the one who fulfills all of his promises, all that he said he would do in his word, and completes whatever he starts in, in, my, in yours and my life. He does all things, as we sang a moment ago, well. And calling him Jesus Christ unequivocally emphasizes that he was and is our Savior. At the mention of his name, we bow our hearts. We confess our deep need for him, that we are weak and that we are helpless to save ourselves, that we need a savior. We need Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's also, as we affirm in this creed, he's also the only son, God's only son. The Apostles' Creed presents God's son to us in terms of who he is and the authority that he has because of that. True belief, what is true belief? When we say, I believe in something, what does that mean? Not just that I know something, but I trust in, that I rely on, that I'm committed to. That's why when I say, do you believe in God? I say, well, I believe in God. Then I say, well, this is what this means. I trust in God, I rely on God, and I am committed to God with the entirety of my life. Okay, no, I don't believe like that. This is what I say I mean. This is what the church says we mean when we say we believe in Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, that he is God's only son. True meaning means that we're committed to Jesus, and that's at the heart of our relationship with God, that we come to God through the Son. The most popular verse in the Bible summarizes the gospel of Jesus and it highlights his identity. The verse that probably everybody knows if they've ever had any kind of attachment to a church at some point or even if not, this is the verse that most people are gonna know. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Anybody else say this growing up and have no idea what begotten was? Anybody else have no idea what begotten is right now? That's okay. <laughs> you have said this probably some of you thousands of times. What the heck does begotten mean? The Greek word for begotten is monogenesis, meaning Jesus is not created, but he is still uniquely God the Son. Jesus is co-eternal and equal in substance with the Father. Jesus has always been God, and yet one of his other's names is Emmanuel, God with us. So what this means is we say he's the only begotten son, that there was a moment that he was begotten, took on flesh, and lived among us, God with us. So what we're saying that he is both God and man fully at the same time when we say he's the only son of God, the only begotten son of God. Hebrews 2, 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Who are those that are being tempted? Me, you, every moment, it's essential to our salvation that we believe Jesus the Son was both fully God and fully man or else he's not able to make propitiation. What does that mean? What does that word mean? It's using to describe the purpose of Jesus' life and death as God and man. That's what it is. That our sin deserved God's wrath. That Romans tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That the wages of that sin, Romans says, is death. But because God is a good and loving Father, because God 
God so loved the world. Not because he was fed up, not because he was frustrated, not because he was mad. God so loved the world that he sent his son so that God's wrath and the curse of sin was going to be poured out on not just sinful people now, but on Jesus Christ alone. And in his love for us, that's what God did, poured out his wrath on his son for our sin. And he also provided us grace and mercy. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus took our place, taking on the punishment of our sin that we deserved and making peace between us and God and also making peace between one another. Second Corinthians says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we, you and I, those who surrender their life to Jesus might become the righteousness of God. Here's some more amazing truth about this Jesus that we believe in and that we worship. He does more than just save us from our sin. Praise God. He also helps us to live in freedom and the joy of our salvation. Like today, we can live in the freedom and the joy of our salvation. As king, he alone has the power to help us thrive in his kingdom that is continually being built in the earth. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we thrive in this kingdom? It's by following the king. Now, there's only one way to thrive in this life, and I want to look at a conversation between Peter and Jesus that leaves us with the only question that really matters as it relates to this life and the next. So if you have your Bible, I will read a little bit of this in Matthew chapter 16. You could turn there, and we're going to read this together. This is the question that we are all going to have to answer. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. We don't come to Jesus unless the Father first draws us by his Spirit. And Peter recognized at that moment that there was more to Jesus than what most people saw. Do you remember the moment that you recognized there was more to Jesus than what most people saw? Do you know there's a lot of people that see a good person in Jesus, just like other people said that Peter was. Other people say a lot of good things, but they don't see Jesus as he truly is. The Christ, meaning the anointed one and the chosen one. And his declaration, Peter's that is, was more than just mere theological facts, more than just stating some sort of cognitive head knowledge. It was a heart response. It was relational. He was saying, this is who you are. I see it. Jesus, you're the son of the living God. And knowing Jesus as the son of God is not just something that happens by mere mental and emotional powers that are resident in our human capacity. It doesn't. It's a supernatural thing. There's a divine work of grace by the power of the Holy Spirit beyond flesh and blood so that in and through and behind the Bible and the preaching of the Word and the miracles that we see, we see the glory of the Son. We taste the divine reality and know Him supernaturally by the power of the Spirit drawing us to Himself. 
So this is the question, right, that we all have to answer. No one can answer this question for you. No one can have a relationship with Jesus on your behalf. You have to come to a place that just like Peter, you have to answer, well, who do you say Jesus is? Belief then initiates action, and actions verify this belief that you have, that he is Jesus Christ, his only son. And as Peter points out in his reply to Jesus, many people can believe good things about Jesus but can still be very wrong about who he truly is, the chosen one, the one who saves, the anointed one, the Messiah. And nothing has changed today. Many people can believe he's a good teacher and he's a good this and he's that, but he's, he's not the only way. He's just one of many ways. As a matter of fact, we can be so blind without God's help that we can create a Jesus that values what we value instead of the other way around. More than a great teacher, more than an enlightened man, more than a worker of miracles, more than a self-help guru, more than a political liberator, more than a caring friend, more than a purpose for the purposeless, Jesus Christ is the savior of sinners like me. And as Matthew 121 says, she will bear a son. And this is the announcement of who Jesus is and his name. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what his name means. And just in case we were to begin to believe that Jesus is just one of many ways to God the Father, the Apostles' Creed affirms what the Bible teaches in John 14, 6, when Jesus said to doubting Thomas, right? He said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is as exclusive and definitive as it can be. It's also as divisive as it was when Jesus first spoke these words. But nevertheless, it is true, and it is the truth that we affirm when we, when we say we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, the only way to the Father. And to be clear, deciding what you believe doesn't mean you're deciding whether it's true. I'll say that again. Deciding what you believe does not mean that you're deciding what is true. Why? Because truth is truth and we are responsible for what we will do now that we have heard the truth about who Jesus is when it comes down to it the reality of who he is Jesus Christ his only son our Lord what are you going to do about the fact that Jesus the son died for you let's close with Lord maybe this is the hardest one because there are many people, too many people, then, and we can all have lived there, we've all been there, so I'm not pointing fingers, I'm saying there's too many people, us included at times, that would want to affirm Jesus as our Savior, but not our Lord. Or we can hypocritically say that he is both, and then live like he is neither. But he can only be both. He is both Savior and Lord. It's not either or, it is only and. And we've said this in the last two weeks, belief leads to action and action demonstrates belief. So the fruit of our life, if he is our Savior, then he is going to be our Lord. When we declare that Jesus is Lord of our lives, we should look different. John 14 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's Lordship. 
When we say we believe Jesus is Lord, it means we surrender to his lordship as Savior and King. And since he has saved us, he is worthy of the entirety of our lives. As we've already talked about this morning, whether it's the singing of a song, whether it's the gathering together in his name as the church, whether it's the giving of our resources and our money because we trust him as our provider, whatever it is, everything, no matter how secret, no matter how hidden, no matter what nobody else knows, he is Lord over every area of your life. No area is off limits to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But resistance to Christ's lordship is numerous, varied, and creative in us. Why? Because sinful hearts detest the lordship of Jesus Christ. Look, this isn't earth-shattering news. We detest anybody telling us what to do. Come on now. Husbands and wives, come on now. Kids, parents, come on now. And that can go either way, especially as your kids get older and they tell you something that's true and you don't want to hear that from them. Man, I am your father. Don't tell me truth. So it's no different if we have a hard time hearing the truth from people that we see and that we love. How much more difficult at times is it us to hear the truth from God through his word and spoken through other ways that he speaks to us and he's trying to do something in our life that we don't want to do because resistance to his lordship is how we oftentimes fight. It's our sinful proclivity, if you will. We want to do what we want to do. We, we don't want anybody telling us anything different than what we want to hear or that makes us feel good. And if it doesn't do those things, then we don't want to hear it. But Jesus is either Lord over all or he's not Lord at all. There is no such biblical doctrine as partial lordship. And the reason that we know this to be true isn't just anecdotal. Millions of Christians have died for this faith since Jesus' crucifixion. Listen, you don't die for something you don't truly believe in. Many today still live with the reality of persecution and imprisonment and death. And where that takes place is some of the places, the fastest growing places of the church or where these things are happening, like in Iran and in China. The fastest growing church, churches are in those places. Because it's easy to say that we're committed to Jesus, his church, his family. But what do our actions say? Because our actions prove and demonstrate our belief. See, to claim Jesus as Savior with no corresponding submission to his lordship is not even a biblical concept. To claim Jesus as Savior and Lord and have no corresponding connection to the body of Christ, the local church, is not a biblical concept. To claim Jesus as Savior and Lord and not love other people made in the image of God is not a biblical concept. And I'm afraid that we have accepted the lie of a consumeristic, convenience-based, have-it-your-way McChurch, oftentimes in the Western culture, that wants to believe that we can have the benefit of the salvation of God without paying the cross of picking up the Jesus Lordship in our life. Following in Jesus' footsteps is not easy but it is filled with grace. I'll close with this. 
And I've said it before, some of the most chilling words in all of the Bible are found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's who will enter in. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? Did you see how much I went to church? Did you see how much I gave? Did you see how loud I sang? How high I lifted my hands? He goes on to say, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, for Christ to be our Savior, he must also be our Lord. He's both and. And our lives have to reflect that reality through our actions, the fruit of our lives. Not just the fruit of our lives, the fruit of our lips, the fruit of our lives. Everything reflects that's who he is. Not by willpower. You're never going to do this by willpower, only for so long. But by the supernatural power of the resurrection that the Bible says actually lives inside of you if you've accepted him as your Savior and Lord. That's the kind of power that's inside of you that we have as we've accepted Jesus Christ, the only Son, as Savior and Lord. We're either all in or we're all out. We cannot merely say we are his unless we live like we are his and that he is the Lord and the King of our lives. He has to sit on the throne of our hearts. He's the king of our hearts. And I want to encourage you with this. When you declare this, when we say we affirm this, and we'll say this all together at the end, when you declare that Jesus is Lord, you join with the voices of every believer for the last 2,000 plus years and around the world even today that are saying the same thing. You join your spiritual family in the past and even today, your brothers and sisters in Christ here and all over the world in every nation, tribe, and tongue that would say this together, that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Notice the creed doesn't say that he is the Lord. It says he is our Lord. What does that mean? That the confession of our faith is a commitment to a community of faith. You can't have a personal faith with Jesus Christ without a corporate community within the body of Christ. And this community is to be diverse, it is to be beautiful, it is to be different, but it is to be one and unified, and that's what God has done through the supernatural power of his name, Jesus Christ. So as I close, let me speak to that real quickly. Because outside of the power of Jesus and his name, what we're called to do as men and women who are also a multi-ethnic and multi-generational church, what we're called to do in building that even here is impossible without the name of Jesus. Not possible. You know what? We prove it almost every week with all the things that we go through and all the difficulties that we fight through and wrestle through, this is not possible to have the church that Jesus died for apart from the power of the name of Jesus operating through our lives as Christ and Savior and Lord. Over the last six years, Say Their Name has become a rallying cry for awareness and justice in the area of racial equality. It's a reminder that every person made 
is made in the image of God. That every person, no matter their background, no matter what they've been through or gone through, what they've done has value, dignity, and worth. It is a reminder that the incessant newsreels of pain and hurt and hatred and death all over the world and in our nation are actually real live people, human beings. And as Christians, we have to care about human beings. We empathize with and we love people because God first loved us. It is a reminder when we say that to grieve with those who grieve. It is a reminder to not become so desensitized to the brokenness of our world that the only name that could save us from that, for we forget about the power of his name. I want to remind all of us for true justice, which means it's coupled with righteousness and restoration that we must continue to call on the name that is above all names and that name is the name of Jesus. That's what the church does. His name is the one we must say. He's our only Savior and Lord. He is our justice and peace. He is our anchor and only hope. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners and saints any good. All our names have their meaning and are wrapped up in the purpose of his name alone and one day we will all confess his name but until then we continue to cry out call on pray praise confess sing shout every ability that we have the wonderful beautiful powerful name of Jesus And we do this, church, till every darkness is dispelled, every demon is cast down, every sickness is healed, every injustice is made right, and every tear wiped away in the name of Jesus, the one whom we believe in and cry out to and praise and honor and worship. So what do we do, church? We live as new people with brand new hearts, with a new family right here and all over the world and with a new purpose given to us by God for the glory of Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. I want to read this together this morning. If you'll join me in that and as the worship team begins to move into place, why don't we stand to our feet and do this and declare this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I'll remind you again, just in case you weren't here, Catholic being little c, Catholic meaning the church universal. This is who we affirm. This is who we believe in. This is who we declare. This is the name that we're going to worship. So let's pray right now as we go to our Father in the name of Jesus. Heavenly Father.
You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.